of you. Let me introduce myself. My name is Keith, and I have been operating the Tales of a Middle-Aged Gamer page on Facebook for nearly eight years. This introduction seems necessary because, while many of you have likely followed this page for quite some time, very few of you know who I actually am. I'd like to officially welcome you to the inaugural episode of the Tales of a Middle-Aged Gamer podcast. While I have big plans for this podcast, I feel the most important step would be to spend this first episode telling you a little bit about myself, what the show will be about, and let you in on my own tale of how I got here. During my time with the Tales page, I struggled with the limitations of Facebook to tell the stories I wanted to tell. I always had the mind to do something more. I considered YouTube videos, podcasts, websites, charities, advice columns, you name it. I probably considered it at some point in my life and in the life of the page. But I could never come up with a format or type of content that was interesting enough or manageable enough to fit who I am or what I felt would be listened to. Recently, I went back to an idea I had roughly 13 or 14 years ago. You see, the first form of the Tales of a Middle-Aged Gamer goes back to a bit I wrote in the hopes of auditioning for an existing podcast, the name of which eludes my memory. I emailed the owners of the podcast, and they said, yeah, send us a recording, and, well, I never did. I wrote the segment, but that is as far as it got. The file has since collected digital dust with nobody to ever see it or hear it beyond my own eyes and ears. The premise of that segment was simple and not unlike the original concept of my Facebook page, tell tales of a game or game session that stood out in my memory and talk about how the mechanics of that game affected the outcome. Anymore, however, that concept seems too simple, maybe even too commonplace. I don't know that it would bring much interest in the sea of options people have available. But as I think back on writing that article, I recall the true intention, to encourage. See, every day on the internet I wade through an endless muck of articles, videos, and comments about faulty mechanics or how something ruins someone's childhood for no adequately explored reason. Some people spend more time than can ever be spent on games they love, telling me why I should avoid games they hate. I've always felt that was a lot of wasted energy. I would much rather spend time and energy celebrating the aspects of the hobby I enjoy. But how do I focus that message and make it worthwhile? I mean, let's face it, I can't hang my hat on the hopes that I'm going to convince people to play games they don't enjoy. Some people define themselves by what they rage against, and I could no sooner change their opinion on a game than I could alter their height or hair color. I could spend hours meticulously pointing out the nuances of, of a particular game, complete with diagrams and mathematical formulae showing how the mechanics achieve perfect symmetry and balance, and anyone who doesn't see it my way can kindly see themselves out. Blogs that make such attempts are a dime a dozen, but that's not really the point of all this, is it? We play the games we love. It's as simple as that. I can relate my experiences and why they affected my choice in games, and perhaps that will bring your attention to a shimmer of gold in a game that had eluded your sight before. That would make me happy. But the ultimate goal is not to change your mind. It is to encourage the enjoyment we find in sharing the living gaming experience with our friends, rather than fixating on how the mechanics of a game might dictate your enjoyment. That is not to say I want to avoid discussion of game mechanics. I love chewing on the crunchy bits of a system as much as any gamer, but the rules of the game, good or bad, are not responsible for our enjoyment of late evenings crowded around a table, drinking warm Dr. Pepper, quoting bad movies, and cheering the random, unforgettable moments wherein we achieve victory or suffer defeat 
all while spending time with the closest friends we'll ever know. It's the effect gaming has on our lives that I want to focus my attention. I plan to release one episode every month. Each will feature a different guest helping me discuss a different theme related to memorable moments and games they played. We'll find out what stood out about those moments and how they might have changed their view on gaming. For this episode, however, I wanted to talk about my own journey through life as a gamer. Where did I begin? Where did I end up? And how did this hobby help me navigate all the moments in between? Hopefully this will provide a foundation for the conversation in future episodes. Of course, it's going to be difficult to distill 40-plus years of experience into 30 minutes, so I'll have to give the highlights. But where to begin? Ah, yes, a trip to my cousin's house, a strange purple box, and older kids who didn't want an 8-year-old around. Here's the tale. As a young kid in the 80s, I wasn't exactly a bookworm. A steady diet of movies, morning cartoons, video games, plastic toys, and sugary breakfast cereals meant I didn't have a lot of time or attention span for reading anything more complicated than comics and those storybooks about movies. You know the ones. Lots of still images, butchered summary of the plot, the ink on the pages smelled really good. The most significant amount of my childhood was spent pretending and play-acting in the fantastical universes designed by the likes of Lucas, Spielberg, Miyamoto, and Kenner. I imagine myself being in the shoes of so many different heroes, it's a wonder my parents ever had to buy me a pair. My older brother, on the other hand, always had his nose in a book. At the age of 12, he could recite passages from The Lord of the Rings as if it were his religion, a quality that has not changed over three decades later. He did his fair share of play-acting and pretending, but the musings about his favorite worlds were more scholarly. He grew up writing his own stories, page after page, as if his head would explode if he didn't get the words out. In that last respect, my brother and I were very similar. While we had a different way of quenching our thirsts for imaginary worlds, we both had a visceral desire to develop our own stories and get them out into the world. My methods lacked permanence, but at that stage I didn't really care. Little did I know that lack of permanence would thrive in a certain hobby. Having a scholarly-minded brother had distinct advantages for a kid that loved to consume stories without the patience to sit and read them myself. There were countless late nights after my parents sent us to bed that I snuck over to my brother's room where I would lay in the top bunk while he read pages out loud from his favorite books. Novels that were a bit heavy for my younger brain were made more accessible. I was free to listen while my imagination constructed the stories like movies in my brain. This dynamic between my brother and I would prove essential as we were introduced to a whole new world of storytelling. We grew up in a typical 80s residential development, cookie-cutter houses, block parties, kids riding bikes. Our playground was an imaginary kingdom defined by every backyard, half-finished house, and climbable tree. Among the dozen or so kids that shared our adventures were two cousins who lived just up the hill and through a couple backyards. The walk to their house was not without its perils. One day, my brother told me about a game our older cousin was playing with some of the other kids in the neighborhood. I recall my brother being uncharacteristically excited about this game, which I assumed was a video game by his description. You play a character, go into dungeons to fight monsters, and gather treasure. Seemed fun to me, but going to see it meant making the walk to our cousin's house, and that meant crossing paths with Apollo. Our neighbors to the back were clearly terrible people. This was quite evident from the massive, hairy beast they had chained in their backyard. They even gave the monster a name. The fact that Apollo was the friendliest, gentlest, black-and-white-spotted Great Dane you'd ever meet 
was irrelevant to a bite-sized kid. I was absolutely convinced that several kids having recently moved away was nothing more than a cover story perpetuated by the adults in the neighborhood to cover up the dietary needs of the vicious fiend. Impassable privacy fences around the adjacent yards meant we had to pass through Apollo's lair, well within the reach of his chain. We had made this run many times in the past, and so we had developed many strategies for getting through with all of our limbs intact. The most daring was for one of us to run past Apollo, the animal bounding close behind us on his spindly legs and pan-sized feet to the safety on the other side. They would then distract Apollo while the rest of our crew made the run. On this day, it was my turn to be the first runner. The bait. As we walked through our yard, I silently hoped that Apollo wasn't outside. These hopes were soon crushed. There he sat in the middle of a patch of dirt, worn out of the grass from his constant patrols for the meaty flesh of careless children. His black eyes were fixed on us. His ears perked up, listening to the heart pounding in my chest. I knew he could smell my fear. We stopped and surveyed the situation. I tested the wind with a few blades of grass, sampled the dirt between my fingers, and turned to my brother with a last plea to take my turn once again. But the laws of the world of kids are sacred and unbreakable. There was no escape. I would be the first one over that wall. I planted my feet, took a slow breath, and gave Apollo a deep, long stare. To this day, I swear I could see bloodstains on the monster's six-inch fangs. My heart stopped. Apollo's head tilted to one side. He could sense I was about to make my move. As we age, I think we realize how naive we were as kids, thinking we knew a lot of adult words. I can't recall which words I learned at what age. What I can recall is that every adult word I knew streamed out of my mouth without a breath in between as my Nike sneakers carried me across that yard faster than they had ever carried me before. I can also recall distinctly that flames were coming out of Apollo's eyes and the ground shook every time one of his massive paws hit the ground. As I mentioned before, Apollo's owners were clearly terrible people. This is the only explanation for the numerous dog toys planters, and rocks they left scattered across the yard with the purpose of thwarting our carefully executed plans of escape. One of these devilish traps struck my left foot, sending me face first into the patchy summer-browned grass. I knew I was doomed. Apollo was on top of me in seconds. His massive tongue began slobbering all over me in a clear attempt to soften me up. It was only a matter of time before he dragged me back to his cave where I'd be stored for later consumption. Over the chaos of fur and tongue, I heard a repetitive sound ring out. A voice started yelling, Apollo, come on, get me! Apollo stopped his assault and began barking. The impact of which on my ears was like a sonic boom. I quickly wiped the animal's drool from my face and looked towards the source of the voice. It was my cousin standing firm at the edge of Apollo's domain, banging on a trash can lid with a stick. He had Apollo's attention, but Apollo still had me trapped under his massive stance. Suddenly, I saw my brother rush by, tapping Apollo on the back of the head as he raced towards my cousin. The bloodthirsty beast couldn't help but take the bait, and I was left a swiftly dwindling window of opportunity. I jumped to my feet and desperately cleared the rest of the distance to safety, passing only inches from the oblivious dog who was now at the end of his chain and standing with an extremely saddened look on his face. I stopped to take assessment of any wounds I was sure I had suffered, while my brother and cousin fell on the ground laughing. The others were eager to praise Apollo for another fun game of chase, rewarding him with welcomed scratches behind the ears. But it would be quite some time before an Apollo and I were on speaking terms. 
The event put me in a bad mood, but I had come this far to see this game my brother talked about. I saw no reason to change course, and I mean, I certainly wasn't going back. Sadly, I was a bit disappointed when we arrived at my cousin's house. Most of the kids sitting around the dining room table were five or six years older than me. Several of them had picked on me in the past, so I had little interest in interacting with them now. And I saw no signs of the video game they were talking about, only a purple box, a few books, and some papers. So why exactly was I here? Since they weren't excited about an eight-year-old joining them in any case, I decided I'd take advantage of the bigger kids being distracted away from the Atari. I'd have it all to myself. After a couple of hours, my brother came into the living room and told me it was time to go home. At the time, I didn't know why, but I later learned that he didn't think it was fair that I wasn't able to join them at the table. My brother was like that. On the way home, Apollo had been brought inside, my brother talked about the game he had played. He told me about the character, the scary dungeon traps, the slathering giant centipede they killed. There were fighters, thieves, and wizards, fights and riddles. I still didn't fully understand how the game worked, but it seemed neat. My brother seemed awfully excited about it. Months would pass before I heard my brother talk about the game again. When my parents asked us what we wanted for Christmas that year, he piped up with a request for Dungeons and Dragons. They got a bit of a funny look on their faces when he mentioned the name. At the time, I thought it was a lack of knowledge about what the title even meant, but I later came to suspect they knew the title all too well. This was the early 80s, after all. But the request was clearly approved because Christmas morning revealed a brand new 1983 Metzer revision of the Dungeons & Dragons role-playing game, the famous Red Box. In the days after, it was rare to see my brother without his nose stuck in one of those two red books, penciling out a new map or writing out a new character. He included me in his first forays into the realm of dungeon mastering, most of which took place in his own version of Middle-earth. I'll admit that I didn't quite understand why the dice were necessary. It was basically the same as playing with our Star Wars action figures, except there were rules that were slightly more ironclad than pew pew, I got you. But it was more of my brother telling me tales that I could form into movies in my head, and this time I had more of a part than just listening. We played the game every chance we got. Anytime our mouths and minds were not occupied with another activity, we engaged in adventure in faraway lands. In the backseat of the car, waiting in lines, on hikes and campouts at the grocery store. Quite often, we didn't even have dice with us. My brother would use a pick-a-number method, where I had to guess what number he was thinking of, and the stats of my character determined the range of numbers from which I could choose. To him, it was another way to, to write stories. To me, it was another way to play pretend. It was interesting going through the later days of elementary school as a D&D player. My brother was in junior high now, so as far as I knew, I was the only one in my school that played. The things I talked about, or the pictures I drew, must have seemed strange to other kids, and I'm sure they were concerning to more than one teacher. Looking back, this may have been when I began to see a growing social distance between myself and other people. I recall my longest-running player character was a skeleton warrior, basically a fighter with undead traits, who benefited from having the Grim Reaper as a sort of patron. I can devote an entire episode to this character in the future. I remember representing the Grim Reaper in a couple of my school projects. This didn't sit too well with some of the kids who were familiar with this character from Sunday school. I don't recall ever getting in trouble over expressing my interest in the game, despite the political climate surrounding it at the time, of which I was completely oblivious, by the way, either because the teachers never gave it much thought or because my parents waylaid any concerns before I ever got caught wind of it. In any case, I quickly learned that it was best to keep such things to myself to avoid any confrontations. 
As a result, our experience in gaming was very cloistered. How the game should be approached was handcrafted by my brother. We knew nothing of conventions and didn't go to game stores to meet other players, so it was quite some time before we began encountering other individuals who played, and even longer before we met anyone who had contact with the larger D&D community. We were left to follow our own path and discover new ideas. I don't quite remember when it was that my brother found out about Middle-Earth role-playing game, or MERP, as it was most commonly known. He probably read about it in Dragon Magazine. Considering his affinity for Tolkien's novels and setting all his D&D adventures in Middle-Earth, it is clear why the idea drew him in. Unfortunately, finding this title proved difficult at the time. But it did open his eyes to the fact that there was more out there than just Dungeons & Dragons. The prospect sounded interesting to me as well, since I was beginning to grow a little bored with D&D. As much as I had entered into the game with a childlike desire to extend my methods of playing pretend, I had become somewhat frustrated with the way D&D affected the outcomes of certain choices. Without putting too fine of a point on it, I found it silly that a character or creature could take a palpable hit and suffer no ill effects. I understood the reasoning behind this abstraction of damage, but my eagerness to read the books had grown and I found myself developing my own opinions about how things could be done differently. As a result, I was ready to try something new. For reasons I can't recall, my brother picked up a copy of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Other Strangeness by Palladium Books. I had never heard of the Ninja Turtles prior to that moment, and neither had he, to my knowledge, and considering he was still searching for the Middle-Earth role-playing game, it seemed an odd choice. But it was a large departure with our time with D&D, both in themes and mechanics. The presence of modern equipment and superhuman characters brought a whole new experience to our table, and learning a new system was exciting. It was also the TMNT RPG that I first tried my hand at game mastering my own sessions. Oh, I tried a few in D&D over the years, but they were usually disjointed, half-baked affairs I rarely saw through to the end. With TMNT, however, I began developing actual adventures and campaigns with metaplots, recurring characters, and villains with motives. My primary audience was my brother, as I was for him before, which gave me the confidence and freedom to expand my wings and see where the wind took me. His favorite character a mutant assassin porcupine with a penchant for punching Nazis, made it all the way to 15th level, which, if you know the Palladium system at all, is no swiftly accomplished achievement. It was at some point during this time that my brother finally found a copy of the Middle-Earth role-playing game. We immediately dove in and found it to be detailed, deadly, and absolutely brilliant. It seemed to speak a vastly different language than our last experience with a fantasy RPG, The choices we made from the backgrounds of our characters were expressed in much more vivid colors on the character sheet. Our first single round of combat in the game took us nearly an hour as we learned to tell narratives in this new syntax. Each moment brought us a new surprise and made us genuinely think about how we would approach the next. My brother loved it for its devoted attention to the details of the setting. I enjoyed it for its visceral representation of the battlefield. Our sessions with Merp fostered my appreciation for deadlier game systems. Always being one die roll away from character death changed the way players acted. Their approach shifted completely. This new way of seeing combat was so compelling that it completely altered the trajectory of my choice in games for the next three decades. Up to this point, all the RPGs we had played were chosen by my brother. That's not to say I didn't enjoy them, as has been amply proven, I think. Nevertheless, none of them were what I would call my own. The choices of titles weren't drawn from my own interests. Then one fateful day, at a local game store, I saw a title on the shelf that spoke directly to a special place in my heart. Star Wars. 
it's kind of a funny story, really. Role-playing in the universe of Star Wars was extremely enticing. I had been playing and pretending in that setting for most of my young life anyways, to add combat roles and character development to this pastime, along with a lot of information about characters and technology from the movies that I had never read before, seemed like a no-brainer. So I plunked down what was left of my measly allowance for the book, and upon returning home, immediately retreated to my room to learn how to play. Right away, though, something seemed wrong. See, I rarely read a book from cover to cover in any linear fashion. Not at first, at least. I open up the book, skip by all the what-is-role-playing-game stuff, and begin hunting down how specific things are done. Character creation, skill rolls, combat damage. These are the meaty parts I tend to plumb first to see if it does things the way I find exciting. But as I skimmed through the Star Wars RPG book, I could not seem to piece together how the game would play. The more I read, the more confused I became. Either I was completely brainless, or my first choice in a role-playing game was a complete dud. Turns out I had bought the Star Wars Rules Companion, an expansion to the core rulebook. Yeah, trust me, nothing you could say. Anyway, I was eventually able to claim the real rulebook, the 1987 edition of Star Wars, the role-playing game from West End Games, and it would spark a love affair that continues to this day. I had entered junior high school, a time period that proved difficult to navigate as a social outcast. Often I hear people talk about how high school was a nightmare of cliques and popularity management. Those years for me were well-adjusted compared to the Dante's Inferno that was 7th and 8th grade. Everything from my haircut to my choice in music seemed to put me in danger of being ridiculed or threatened. Some methods for survival were pretending I was the quiet one at the back of a Tatooine cantina, always wearing the same green hooded sweatshirt that made me feel like Legolas, and seeking refuge with my friends. Those days my brother was home less often. He was in high school, had a driver's license, and a girlfriend. We still played games together, but I began to realize that he would not be around forever, at least not to the degree that he had been when I was younger. This cast me off my safe shores, where I drifted for a while on choppy seas in search of other islands. If you'll pardon the extended metaphor, gaming was the boat upon which I sailed. The eye within the daily storm was a table at lunch, where I would meet a group of fellow nerds. We'd talk about movies, TV shows, comic books, and, well, all the things that nerds go on about. But it was the hobby of adventure gaming that became a vessel for us to meet outside of school. We started a gaming club we called Project Genesis, an unnecessary name applied to something quite simple, a group of best friends. We had sleepovers and campouts, played games and watched TV, and spent time together that I will always remember. I don't think those guys will ever appreciate how much they helped me through those two years. As with all interests that prove common between two people, gaming always served as the first handshake for me. It was the icebreaker and introduction that a socially awkward introvert needed to strike up a conversation and make new friends. Once those bonds were made, gaming became the default conversation. Whether it was a new character you designed, a storyline you had written, or a book you picked up, it was the news we couldn't wait to tell the group about the next day. This would become a truism for my entire life and served as a stable ship every time life would cast me out from familiar shores. When I was about 14 years old, my family moved from one town to another. Not a gigantic distance, probably 10 miles from driveway to driveway, but it was enough to put us in a new school district. And as a friend of mine often says, when you're a kid without a driver's license, 10 miles might as well be light years. The house we moved into was great. It was a big old house, 
farther away from civilization and bordering a state park. There was lots of undeveloped land to explore. Living further away from the nearest neighbor meant there was nobody really around, and I was okay with that. This would have been the summer before I started high school. Not an easy time for any kid. Leaving the brutality of junior high and entering the uncertainty of high school, it's pretty big. It's especially big when you know you won't have the haven of your closest friends to seek out every day. Having moved into the house early in the summer, I had a couple of months to settle in and ponder the school days to come. One day, my brother dropped an object into my hand and said, Hey, look what Dad found in the basement. It was an odd thing to see, this beat-up little 20-sided die resting in my palm. I mean, the universe outside my own little world of friends and family didn't even know such things existed, right? How would this iconic relic, something so familiar, be here in this unfamiliar alien land? It was cracked and worn, dirt invaded every crevice. And then it struck me. People played D&D in this house. It was such a small thing, but for some reason this little thing, this beat-up die that had obviously seen a lot of use, helped ground me in that new house. I felt a connection. This piece of plastic had been used to climb snow-crusted mountains, battle hordes of ravenous orcs, maybe even fly a starship through a wormhole. It was like a bright star, a navigational beacon. Weeks later, school started. I can't say my life in high school was perfect, but as I walked up those steps to the school on that first day, I walked a little taller, knowing that there might be new people who shared the same interests as myself somewhere in this new world. Because of that 20-sided die, which was hiding deep in my pocket that day, I knew I just had to find them and find them I did. I'm sure it will come as no surprise to anyone that I was a band geek. I suppose the realm of music is a veritable gravity well for creative minds, because it wasn't long before I found a few gamers with a similar disposition to keep their proclivities hidden. While I can't say gaming with these folks expanded my worldview, I will say I had a fantastic time with them. They did introduce me to Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, which was something I had avoided or missed up to that point, but I didn't keep in touch with them after high school, nor did I continue with AD&D. About halfway through my high school years, my brother and I were in the front yard raking leaves on a crisp fall day. As usually happens, our conversations revolved around the games we were playing and debating various details about the inner workings of our characters, their backgrounds, and their storylines. To date, the only long-term game mastering I had done was with my brother as the only player. Anything done in larger groups was shorter adventures or run by someone else. On this day, I was actively presenting my case to take the reins on the next big campaign. The second edition of Star Wars The Role-Playing Game had just been released, new novels set in the Star Wars universe were being written, and I was as steeped in the lore as anyone could be at the time. Combined with an urge to really spread my wings as a game master, I felt it was my time. A few weeks later, we started a campaign that would last several years. These were the sessions that taught me how to run character-driven stories that linked multiple subplots together into one massive metaplot. As a group, we told tales that are still talked about to this day. It became the metric against which we evaluated every future campaign. It also produced the core of my circle of friends for the next half decade. Every gaming group I would ever start for the rest of my life was seated with at least one member of the group that came to be known as the POAB, an acronym that will remain undefined to the general public. 
In college, I got a student job repairing computers across campus. It was like getting picked up by the mothership. As you can imagine, I couldn't throw a ram stick without hitting a nerd. I fell into the orbits of gamers who had entirely new views on the hobby. I found new games, new theories, and new friends. I also found GURPS. As I mentioned earlier, I had developed an appreciation for games that had a more literal approach to combat and damage. Call me a simulationist if you like, if you subscribe to Mr. Edwards' theories, but I was always drawn to systems that had a more realistic lean to them. GURPS was very liberating in that I could make exactly what I wanted for any story I wanted, and it fit keenly into my style of play. It would also end up being my favorite system that I would only rarely play. During my college years, I would really embrace the idea of learning everything about every system I could get my hands on. I discovered I had a voracious appetite for how games worked. I wanted to learn how to tell stories in each new language presented by the game system. My collection of games grew much larger than I would likely ever actually play, a habit that continues to this day. I also did most of my own world and system designs during these years. It is said that if you remember the 60s, you weren't really there. I sometimes jokingly refer to the late 90s of gaming the same way. It's hyperbole, of course, but it has a ring of truth. The landscape was changing rapidly, and the traditions that served the hobby for over two decades were being challenged. Character-driven narratives and tabletop gaming weren't exactly new. Many gamers had indulged in a more play-acting style of storytelling for years, but that wasn't the view of the hobby from the outside. It was mostly seen as a haven for socially awkward hobbyists who weren't all that celebrated. Then along came White Wolf. The series of games produced by White Wolf, collectively known as the World Darkness, popularized the character-driven narrative as the explicit focus of the game. It encouraged abandoning the table, and even the dice for that matter, for a more dramatic modality. Combined with the moody, gothic horror setting, this drew role-playing games out of the basement and into nightclubs of all places. It also drew in a new host of players who never would have given the hobby a second look. While the vampire fad expanded the population of gamers, it also began to divide them between the traditional hobbyists and more modern dramatists. Most gamers, however, seemed to absorb the new culture, sticking with more weathered games while still ridding themselves of a lot of the physical trappings. I was more in this latter group of a blended approach. I enjoyed a fair number of campaigns in the World of Darkness, including a long-running story of Mage the Ascension. Once again, I was learning to take my storytelling in new directions and explore more mature themes with greater moral fluidity than I had ever done before. Characters had interplayer love affairs, players explored more personal emotions, and it kicked off a weird trend where I started putting elements into campaigns that would appear in a movie within a year. It was bizarre. I think there's an episode of a future podcast on that subject. Life marches on, as it should, and few things can alter the course of someone's ship like meeting the love of your life. I never expected to find someone I gel with so well, but there she is, helping me navigate the choppy waters, laughing at my stupid jokes, checking my grammar. She's not much of a gamer, but she has always been extremely supportive of my interest in the hobby, as I'm supportive of her. Continuing the weird trend of prophecy through gaming, I got a traveler book autographed by Mark Miller with a dedication that read, Bon Voyage. It was dated a month before my first son was born. 
Mark Miller had no idea I was about to be a dad, but it was almost as if he knew that I'd be saying goodbye to my old life and embarking on the most incredible journey I could ever imagine. My personal life found a strange type of stability and permanence, while my gamer life was sent afloat to the unknown. I was left wondering if I'd ever see that part of my life again. It would be nearly five years before I was able to scratch out enough time to start gaming again in any serious way. By then, a lot of the folks I had gamed with had followed their own winds to uncharted seas. They discovered their own adventures, fought their own battles, uncovered their own treasures. In terms of other gamers, I was mostly isolated. But there was a new tool for gamers now. The internet had arrived. It quickly became a way to make connections to other gamers in ways we never thought possible. Once again, I found myself being thrown into orbits I never knew before and met two guys who not only helped me get back into the hobby, but changed my entire paradigm as a gamer. Interestingly, one of those gamers was a student of the history of the industry. He introduced me to aspects of gaming that I never knew, taught me about its roots and beginnings, encouraged me to learn about the designers of the games I loved. From this education, I began looking back at games I skipped over when I was growing up, and my desire to be a part of the large gaming community grew. I would also attend my first Gen Con around this time. I would go on to host games at conventions, learning how to crack my social shell more and more. This momentum was vital in starting my own Facebook page, which many of you already know about. Over the past decade, I've introduced my own kids to the joys of tabletop gaming, and I've fallen in with a group of fantastic gamers, some of which are old friends I was able to reconnect with. I don't game nearly as often as I'd like. We manage to eke out a session or two per month, and in those moments, I'm reminded of the way things were. My Dr. Pepper might be a little colder now, but we still laugh and make moments to remember. Over four decades, many things have changed, both in my personal life and in the world around me, but there have always been many touchstones that I could always find while sailing the stormy seas. My brother is still the first person I want at any table. Friends that I made when I was a kid have come back into my life. I'm constantly surrounded by people who are supportive of my interests, whether they're interested in them or not. I've also been constantly reminded about how amazing games are for acting as that first handshake, the icebreaker. Countless times over the years, I would encounter perfect strangers, and within minutes, we'd be sitting around the table, trading stories, rolling dice, and smiling, sharing in an experience that is unlike any other, a hobby that is explicitly designed, despite its reputation, to bring people together, get them to cooperate towards a common goal, and build friendships that will last a lifetime. I want to wrap up this journey by thanking all of you so, so much for taking the time to listen. This podcast has been a concept long in development, and I'm overjoyed to finally bring it to life. I'd like to thank Four Rounds Comics for providing the artwork for this podcast, as well as the Tales of a Middle-Aged Gamer Facebook page. I would also like to dedicate this first episode to my mom. Let's face it, gamers are a weird bunch. Our conversations, taken out of context, can be alarming to those on the outside. It's a brave thing for a parent to take a moment and see something for what it actually is, rather than how it is defined by some irrational fears. To encourage your kids to follow their passion, even when that passion is mired by ignorance, takes a lot of strength. But that was my mom, fearless and strong. 
At least, that's the way she seemed to me. Thanks, Mom. I hope you'll join me for the next episode where I will invite a friend to the microphone. We'll talk about that person's experiences and how gaming affected their life. I hope to learn more about them and maybe more about myself. Do you have something to add? I invite you all to leave a comment either on the podcast website or you can come visit me at the Tales of Middle-Aged Gamer on Facebook. I might even share your comment in the next episode. In the meantime, I encourage you to play the games you love, love the games you play, and maybe I'll see you at the table someday. Thank you.